0: Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially. Because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B E T H. Ariel.org. Also, please remember to pray for us, that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this message. And in that letter, he presents to us the challenge to be filled, to be controlled by the very Spirit of God. In Genesis chapter 1, we learn that the Spirit of God was engaged in the creation of the world. We read throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, and we read how the Spirit of God empowers the prophets. How the Spirit of God enabled those who would craft and put together the tabernacle to enable us to worship him. Now we know that since Messiah has come, the Spirit of God is available to fill us, to control us, and to impart his very own character, what Paul refers to as the fruit of the Spirit of God. Today we conclude this series. I don't know too many series that I've concluded, but we conclude this series on self-control. So now the fruit of the Spirit is the qualities characteristic of God himself. Now, you know, whenever I'm typing these things, that um, the grammar is always kind of weird, right? We want to say the fruit of the Spirit are the qualities, but the Bible is never... it never is consistent with our grammar, you know? The Spirit of God is a person, and yet the Greek word for spirit, pneuma, is a neuter word. So the writers have to decide, do we use a neuter pronoun, it, or a personal masculine pronoun, he? So they have to make these choices. Similarly, when Paul writes, he doesn't write of the fruits, plural, of the Spirit, which are the characteristics of God. But he writes singularly, the fruit of the Spirit, it is the characteristic, I guess I should have, characteristic of God himself. But the fruit of the Spirit that he defines for us really has nine aspects to it. I don't know how else to really say it, but, you know, if you think of a diamond, uh, it has facets to it. And no matter what facet you look at or look through, you see the entirety of the diamond. Similarly, there are nine aspects to the fruit of the Spirit. It doesn't matter which aspect you look through, you're seeing the fruit in its entirety. And that's the way the fruit of the Spirit is to be manifested in our own lives. It's kind of strange, but that's what it is. And when we look at these nine aspects, while I'm not fully convinced of what I'm going to share with you right now, it is helpful for me, and I hope for you as well. But when you look at these three, these nine aspects, you can divide them into three sections or three groupings. And so the first three aspects of the fruit of the Spirit seem to be Godward in direction. They have a prior uh, interest in drawing our attention to God himself. So that is to say, love, joy, peace. We're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're to find the joy of the Lord is our strength. We are to experience the peace of God and peace with God. So I think of these three first aspects as Godward in nature. We could say they are vertical in nature. They draw us upward into his presence. In the Middle Ages, you know, when churches, for example, were constructed, they had the spires. They were made almost to look like these giant vertical pillars. Because as you approach them, they were to draw your eyes heavenly. We're getting ready to enter into a place where we're going to be drawn not merely to the preacher, not merely to the music, not merely to the organist, but to the word of God and upward toward God himself. And so similarly, the fruit, these first three aspects are to draw our attention, I think, to God himself Particularly, but then the second three are sort of—I said man word. You know, I'm trying to deal with these uh, sexist language. You know, not man word, but people word, I guess, other word uh, to one another. Uh, but I just didn't know how to say word. You know, I wanted to get God word, and well, you you can play with that. But toward others, men and women alike, and there we are to exhibit patience toward one another. But the Greek word patience means tolerance. I think it's a stronger word, to be tolerant of one another. We're to be kind-hearted toward one another. We are to do good to others. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves, And then there's an inward dimension, something that points inwardly. So the first one points vertically, the second one points horizontally, and the third one sort of points back at us. Are we a faithful, trustworthy, dependent kind of people or congregation? Are we ones who are gentle, humble before one another, gentle with one another? And lastly, today, we want to look at this aspect that is defined as being self-controlled. Another way of talking about being self-disciplined. And um, this term self-control means means to be a master of yourself. It means to be one who has power over oneself. It means that this is a person who is in control of his or her choices that are made. It it speaks of a a self-disciplined life. And it comes up in a couple of very interesting passages I want to share with you. In the book of Acts, there's a point at which toward the end of the book that we read how Paul was... Uh, made his appeal to Caesar and he was taken prisoner. He's brought to Caesarea on the coast of Israel to be brought before trial. He's brought before a man named Felix. Felix was a procurator of Jerusalem after the time of Pontius Pilate, who was a procurator in Jerusalem somewhere around 30 to 35 or maybe a little earlier, but he was deposed by the mid-30s. But in A.D. 53, Felix was placed as the procurator of Rome. He was married to Drusilia, who was a Jewish woman. He was Roman, but she was Jewish. Now, notice this. He sends for Paul. Paul comes before him, and he begins to speak about Messiah Yeshua, the Israel's promised one, the one about whom the prophet spoke. He begins to tell him, that is, Felix, about the Messiah of Israel. But he says some other things. Notice, he also discoursed. That is to say, he taught. That's what the word discourse means. He taught him. He probably spent a good many hours with him. Maybe not in this first sitting, but on other contexts. But notice what he discourses with him. He talks with him about the nature of righteousness. He talks with him about the nature of self control, self-discipline, and then he talks about the judgment to come. Now look how Felix responds. It says, and Felix was afraid. He was fearful. And there's good reason, because Felix is described by Herodotus, the Roman historian, that he was one of the worst procurators Jerusalem and Judea had to deal with. It says that his actions, this is a Roman historian, his actions he's described as being criminal in nature, and his morals were, as we might say, in the gutter. He was a man who had married Druselia, but she was already married to another man. He hired a magician, a sorcerer, to speak to Druselia and to convince her to leave her husband, and to marry Felix. Now think about that. Here is Paul standing before the most powerful man in Judea, the representative of Caesar himself. And he doesn't just talk about Messiah Yeshua. He tells him about righteousness. Now that is not something Felix would have wanted to hear. He was a man of great unrighteousness. But it's important that we understand what righteousness is. It was important that Felix understand it. The righteousness about which Paul probably, because we don't know for sure, but probably discussed was the righteousness of God, which is perfection. And if we're going to be pleasing to God, we must be righteous. Unfortunately for you and I and Felix, none of us are as righteous as we ought to be or need to be in order to gain God's favor. And Felix was no different in that category. But that doesn't mean he's excused for his unrighteousness any more than we are. But rather, we need to do something about our unrighteousness. And what must we do about it? Self-control. He's telling Felix, you just cannot act any way you want to and think that everything's going to be all right because there is someone you're going to stand before who is going to judge you. And unless you have something that will do it for you so as to be righteous in the sight of God, you will not be able to stand before him. There's no question that Felix felt the guilt and the truth of what Paul had said, and he was fearful. Not everybody that comes to know Messiah as Savior is in fear of God, that's for sure. But there comes a point in time where we all come to that place where we realize, I have a great need, and if the need is not met, I cannot be the kind of person that I not only want to be, but what I ought to be. And unless God takes hold of me, I'm in real bad shape. And so with Felix, he was afraid, and he said, that's enough. I don't want to hear any more. How often has that happened to us? That when people have prayed for us, I don't want to hear any more, and we've shared with them, I don't want to hear any more. It's a journey. Some of us have to hear less than more, but most of us have to hear more than less. And Felix had had enough. You may leave, and when I find it convenient, I'll send for you again. Well, I hope that Felix did, and I hope that perhaps he may have responded. But whatever Felix did is somewhat secondary, because all of us are here in this room today, and we too are hearing the words of Paul. Yeshua is Messiah. We are in need of a righteousness that we cannot muster for ourselves, but needs to be granted to us even to the point of enabling us to be self-controlled if we are to bypass the judgment of God and to be fully accepted by him. And so today is your day. And I hope you would not say, if you do not know him as such, that's enough for now. You may leave. I'll come next week and think about it again because none of us knows whether there is a next time or another week. But in any case, Paul not only admonishes Felix this way but this is interesting too he uh, he points or he appoints Titus to be his emissary his representative on the island of Cyprus where Paul and Barnabas had first gone to share the message of Messiah he sends Titus not just to any one particular congregation on that island but to all of them And he tells Titus, you are to appoint elders. That's interesting. He doesn't say lead the congregations to nominate and to vote on and to accept. He simply says appoint them. He has that authority, that responsibility. Appoint them. But notice he tells them, the ones whom you are to appoint must, among other things, manifest self-control. Not only that, but Peter... When he writes, he tells all of us, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness. This issue of self-control permeates the scriptures. It's a fruit of the spirit. The question is, to what degree are we self-controlled? There are dangers if we lack self-control. Here are just a few examples. Think about Adam and Eve. Because Eve saw the fruit was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that it was that which could make her wise, she lost her self-control, having been lured by all of these other desires that she also had. Desires that would be prideful in nature to be uh, to be filled with knowledge, you know. Desires of beauty and what things look like, to be attracted to what we see, or even those natural necessities of our bodies and being lured by the need for food or other things. If we lack self-control, it's a danger. And we see the danger that came by Adam and Eve's lack of self-control because all of us are experiencing it as a result. We all die. And not only do we all die, but we're all alienated from God unless he does something for us. But think about Rebecca and Jacob. God had told Rebecca that the Elder will serve the younger. Esau will serve Jacob. But yet as time goes on, she loses her trust in God. She loses that self-control and she desires to bring about this, uh, this promise and revelation of God by her own ingenuity. So what does she do? She tells Jacob to dress up like her, his brother Esau and to deceive your father Isaac so as to get the patriarchal blessing. Jacob does that. As a consequence, they never see each other again. When you lose self-control, there are consequences for one's actions. That's the consequence that Rebecca and Jacob will experience. Not only that, think about the spies that were sent out by Moses. God told them, I'm bringing you into the land of milk and honey. He brings them to right at the gate, Kaddish Barnea. In 1979, I had the opportunity to actually visit Kaddish Barnea. Today, it's sort of in, in Egyptian hands. It's right on the border, and many people don't go down that way. But nevertheless, right at the border, he tells them to spy out the land. I'm giving it all to you. All 12 spies go out, but 10 come back with an, a negative report. They fail in their self-control to trust God, and they are fearful, and they allow their fears to control them. As a consequence, for the next 40 years, they wander in the wilderness. None of them ever enter the promised land, except for the two that had voiced faithful uh, response to God, Joshua and Caleb. Think about Moses. Moses was told to speak to the rock. He lost his control. He got angry with Israel, and he struck the rock. As a result, Moses is not able to enter the land. Think about Samson. If there is a person I would love to be, it would be Samson, you know. I mean, you know, he probably was about my size, you know, and he probably had a very high voice, but yet that guy could take the gates of Gaza and put them up in his head. You know, what those gates are like. I mean, how do you balance those things? I mean, you know, those gates were huge. Those are the things that donkeys, horses, camels walk through. He takes them both and he just says, I'm going for a walk. And for 20 miles, he walks with them. And he takes them, he parks them on some mountain, and it makes the city vulnerable to any attack. Now they got to rebuild those doors. Think about the strength of this guy. I mean, I'm working out these days, but I'm never going to do that, you know. But wouldn't you love to be able to do that? Just bang, you know. But he lost his self-control and his unbridled passions. And as a result, he lost his eyes. He lost his dignity. He was thrown into prison. And eventually he would die. And one of the, I don't know, sometimes I think it's a sad epitaph to be told that you killed more men at your death than when you were alive. I mean, I don't know, that hits me in a negative way. Maybe someone can do something with it to make it more positive. But Samson could have been greater than great. But because of his lack of self-control, he wasn't. Think about Saul. His jealousy led him to lose the dynasty of Israel. The first king of Israel does not go down as the greatest king of Israel. He goes down as one of the weakest and perhaps worst kings of Israel. If that was all that he went down with, that wouldn't be so bad. But because of his jealousy toward David, he loses his greatest fighter and his greatest potential general. And as a consequence, not only does he die on the field of battle, but so do all his children. And the only descendants of Saul that are left would be Mephibosheth, who is uh, his grandson, Jonathan's son. Think about Jonah. (laughs) It's kind of a cute one or a funny one, I guess. But his lack of self-control, in my opinion, did cost him his life in the belly of the whale. And eventually, he had to do what God would have him to do anyway. If we lack self-control, it is not only a bad thing, it's a dangerous thing. But think of the blessings of self-control. Think of a man like Joseph, who obeys his father, and though taken into captivity, and then finds himself serving Potiphar, and when Potiphar's wife attempts to seduce him, his self-control again manifests itself, and he would not, would not engage in an adulterous affair. Throws him in prison for two years, but what's the end result? He's a man that has gone down in history as second to the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh. He goes down in history as the man that saved Egypt and all of the Middle East from destruction during the famine. He goes down in the scriptures as only one of three individuals, three individuals, about whom there is no wickedness described. There's nothing wrong ever said about Joseph He's only presented in a positive light. Think of a man like, men like Joshua and Caleb, they enter the land. Think of a man like David, yes, he had his faults, but he would not raise his hand against the king Of Israel, Even though he had two opportunities to do so, and even though he was being pursued by Saul, he was a man of respect for authority and leadership. And what happens? He becomes the prototype of the Messiah, the son of David, the prominent king of Israel. Think of a man like Daniel, another person about whom no bad thing is recorded, and see how faithful he was because he was a man of self-discipline, three times a day, always praying always seeking the Lord, not even compromising the food that he would eat in chapter 1. And he was only about 17 or 18 years old at the time. The point is that there are blessings when we exhibit self-control. Paul's admonition, let me share this with you in First Corinthians, it's about self-control. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one gets sorry gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. You know that Greek word for strict training means self-discipline. And he says, they do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. The word aimlessly means without any goals, without any end point. Without uh, the uh, finish line as it were He says I do not fight like a man beating the air No I beat my body By the way that phrase beat my body It says give myself a black eye It means he disciplines himself These are metaphors He doesn't literally do that But he does metaphorically In the sense he's disciplining himself Even to the point of it hurts I'd rather do this but I, I know I shouldn't Couldn't It'll be detrimental if I do He says, no, I beat my body. I make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself would not lose the prize, not lose the reward. Now, this is really fascinating because in Corinth, like in Athens, they too had athletic games. Athens, it was every four years. In Corinth, it was every two years. And in Corinth, they only had six events. They had running they had the javelin throw, they had the discus throw, they had boxing, they had jumping, and they had one, one other. I forget what, what it is right now. But they had those games, and those individuals that did well could qualify for the Olympic Games in Athens. He mentions two, running and boxing. He says that runners don't run without knowing the finish line at the end right? That's his concern. We shouldn't run aimlessly like we're just running. It's sort of like the gun goes off. So where am I running to? doesn't matter. Just run. We'll see if you win. How do you know if you don't know where you're going? He says runners don't run that way. They run with a goal in mind. Boxers too. They don't go into the ring without a goal. The goal is not to beat the air, but to hit your opponent. The idea is you want to hit the opponent, not miss him. You want to hit the finish line, not not know where it is. So he says, just like that, you and I are in a competition, as it were. We're not competing with each other, but we're in a race. And we need to know where we're going. Do you know where you're going? We need to know where the finish line is. We need to know who the enemy is, as it were, who our opponent is. We need to know what's going on. Or we just, every day we wake up, it's another day, let's see what happens. There needs to be a goal in mind, he's saying. And in order to meet that goal... We have to be self-disciplined or else we're not going to be in the right shape to do it. So he says, look, these guys that compete in these games, they're self-disciplined. We who are competing for our reward, we need to be self-disciplined or we will lose our reward. Just like the runner who doesn't finish the race or like the boxer who doesn't make connection with the opponent will not gain the reward. The reward that these guys fought for was a temporary reward. Some of them were just withered celery sticks that were given out to the champions. Some of them were just wreaths made out of various different kinds of, of uh, floral things or, you know, whatever. And they would eventually perish. But we're competing for the greatest prize of all, the rewards that the Lord has for us. We have to have our eyes on the goal and we have to be disciplined, self-disciplined to attain it. That means we have to be concerned about the thoughts that we have. You know, Paul talks about taking our thoughts captive. It means we have to be concerned about the attitudes that we exhibit, like anger in the case of Moses, like jealousy in the case of Saul, or, or like lust in the case of Samson. We have to be concerned about our, the discipline of ourselves. I'm not talking about Bible reading and prayer and all that. Indeed, we need to do that. But we have to be disciplined about the harder kinds of things of life. We have to be disciplined about those things that are inside, that run amuck with us, that we have to control and hold back and to say no to and yes to others. That's what Paul is talking about. But, you know, the greatest example, of course, is Messiah. Messiah had a goal. Hadn't thought about this before, but he had a goal. And here's his goal. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. That's what he came for. He came so that we could be with him and not only be with him, but to see his glory. So what is our goal? Our goal. Our goal is to be with him and to see his glory. That's what our goal in life is. If you want to see his glory, we need to be self-disciplined in our thoughts and in our actions and in our behavior, or we may not see him as we ought. If we want to be with him, we need to be self-disciplined. We need to realize the truth of the revelation of God concerning Messiah And whatever our feelings might be about that, we need to be disciplined enough to say the word of God is the word of God. It points to Yeshua as Messiah. I need to hold my feelings at bay and receive him, even though there may be reason in my heart that I have a concern not to. The Lord's goal, and by the way, this was Moses' goal. I want to see your glory. Isn't that what he said in the mountain? And the Lord said you will, but you can't see all of it. That's what these people, this is what the whole, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, they looked for a kingdom that was greater. They looked for a greater Jerusalem than the Jerusalem on earth. They looked for a greater rest than the rest they had in Shabbat. They looked for a greater than the high priest Aaron, because we have a greater high priest. They looked for him. That's the goal of our life. That's why it's a narrow road that leads to that goal. And it takes self discipline to stay on that road. So I said, when we get to the end, we experience the reward. Isaiah 53 tells us, he was oppressed and afflicted, and here's what's so neat about his self-discipline. He did not open his mouth in his own defense. And it just doesn't mean that he didn't verbally defend himself. He didn't defend himself in any way, shape, or form. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and he did not resist the suffering he would have to, resist, have to endure, that we would see him and that we would see his glory, that we would know him and see his glory. In fact, twice Isaiah says it, right? And as a sheep before a shearer is silent, so he did not resist. His own self-discipline led, leads to our own salvation. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B E T H A R I E L.org.